horror filmmakers and horror fans tend to be deeply empathetic, sensitive people. And so their attraction to these films is that they need an outlet, they need a fantasy, because the horrors of the real world are so deeply hurtful to them that this is a safe place for them to play. Welcome to Your Magic. I'm Michelle T, and today I'm in conversation with a true icon, Peaches Christ, the Bay Area-based drag queen who is all about all things horror, culty, campy, and spooky. With fellow filmmaker Michael Verratti, she hosts the Midnight Mass podcast, which deep dives into underground cinema classics. And every fall, she creates the spectacular Horror Vault, an immersive haunted house located inside San Francisco's historic and creepy Old Mint Building. We're going to talk about religious damage, the 1906 earthquake, Satanism, and more. Then we'll spend a moment with friend of the pod, Edgar Fabian Frias, who will help you invoke the spirit realm to work with your fears. Stay with us. You know, I slept in a haunted house once. It belonged to my friend Heather's grandparents, who had both recently died, and the way that old people who really love each other pass, one and shortly thereafter, the other. The house was in Michigan, and Heather had arranged to join her mother there and help her get the place ready to be put up for sale. She was also going to pick up her grandparents' car, which she was inheriting. This was summer 1996, when I learned Heather was going to drive all the way from the Midwest back to San Francisco, our home base, I invited myself along. Our mutual friend Carrie also hopped on board. We were so psyched for this road trip, which would take us through Memphis, New Orleans, Santa Fe, all these iconic American cities. Carrie and I met up with Heather after debauching for a week at an outdoor music festival. This is an important bit. I'm a sober alcoholic, but I wasn't then. A terrible camper, I brought like a sleeping bag and a gallon of whiskey. I came to party. I crashed in different tents for seven days, hooking up, barely eating, sleeping poorly on rocks and brambles. Once after a thunderstorm, I awoke in a leaky tent with my head in a puddle. When we got to Heather's grandparents' house, I was so in need of stable comfort. Even though I was sleeping on the floor in the basement, at least it had a carpet and a roof. Heather's mom cooked us a warm meal before I conked out. I'd really abused my body, and I could feel my immune system starting to sag. But what I hadn't realized, hadn't known about yet, despite my interest in the occult, is that you have a psychic immune system too. It helps keep out the spirit realms, the swirling unknown, so you can focus on life on Earth without getting spooked and distracted. That night, falling asleep in an underground room empty but for a chiming grandfather clock, my psychic immune system was frayed. You know that feeling when you're falling asleep and you get this sensation like you're falling? And your whole body jerks and you sort of wake up from the dream state you are tumbling into? Well, that night, as I began to slide into slumber, that happened to me, but I couldn't move. My body was stuck in what's known as sleep paralysis. It's a terrifying experience, being alert mostly and having what really felt like a physical sensation, this sense of falling and falling and falling and falling, and you can't pull yourself out of it. It went on for hours. It went on all night long. At some point, the sensation of falling began to morph into something else. I began to feel or fear that something, some entity, was trying to pull me out of my body. The struggle to jolt myself awake turned into a new effort, an effort to stay within myself. I have no idea what was trying to get me. I mean, I have no idea what this experience was at all, but it felt scary and unsafe. I tried to open my mind to it, like maybe I was going to astral project. Maybe this was a mystical experience, but my fear was ruining it. But no, it didn't feel safe at all. It felt really frightening. 
The one thing that gave me comfort through the long, dark night was hearing the pitter-patter of Heather and her mother walking around upstairs. See, I would tell myself, you're safe. People are nearby. Carrie was very nearby, in an adjacent room, and when at daybreak I finally managed to shake off my sleep paralysis, I stumbled in and woke him up. Can I sleep with you? I've had a really scary night. I can't even explain it. Carrie made room for me in the twin bed he slept in, and I passed out hard, only to wake up a little later on the floor with no idea how I got there. A dream had woken me up. In the dream, I saw the face of a middle-aged man, African-American, wearing a hat sort of like a police cap. As if on a movie screen, his face filled up the whole of my vision. He was facing away, and then he turned and looked directly at me and spoke, though I heard nothing, as if the sound was off. There was absolutely nothing scary about this man or this dream, and yet I was overcome with terror that I was seeing something I was not supposed to see, not at all. It was wrong. It was forbidden. I woke up, wondered how the hell I got on the floor, and fell back asleep. The next time I woke up, maybe an hour later, it was because my body had become racked with a full-blown orgasm. Yes, you heard me. I wasn't touching myself. I hadn't had a sexy dream, nothing like that. It was just my body going haywire. I got out of bed finally or off the floor and found Heather upstairs. She had also slept terribly, she said. She and her mother were scared all night long. They kept hearing the sound of someone walking through the house, but no one was there. They'd stayed huddled in bed all night, awake and alarmed. That wasn't you walking around, I asked, my body rolling with goosebumps. Nope, it was not. When I told Heather about my experience, she scolded me for being such a seeker, a dabbler in the occult, yet doing nothing to ground myself, keep myself safe from you know, malevolent energies. She shared with me that her grandparents had been occultists themselves, and they taught her how to surround herself with white light. Wait, your grandparents were occultists, I asked, stunned. Heather took me back downstairs where I'd been sleeping and opened a closet. It was filled with antique esoteric occult literature. Holy crap. So on the drive back to San Francisco, our idyllic road trip fell apart. Heather had a huge crush on Carrie, and when it was not reciprocated, her Scorpio moon lashed out and then lashed out and lashed out. It proved too much for Carrie, and when we pulled into New Orleans, he decided to bail. I felt bad that my friend had been like driven off this adventure. I worried about him having to Greyhound back to California alone. So in solidarity, I left the trip also, and I bought a bus ticket back to the bay. Heather drove us to the bus station in the morning. Carrie and I waited in the long line of people boarding the bus as the driver checked tickets. Finally, it was my turn. Looking away from me to say, you know, hi to a colleague, he then turned to face me, the bus driver. There he was, the man from my dream, African-American, middle-aged, that cap on his head. It was a Greyhound driver's cap. Hello, he said pleasantly. May I have your ticket? I don't know what the hell that was all about. Was the house haunted? Did Heather's grandparents open a portal with their occult hanky-panky? Was it their spirit saying, oh yeah, little girl, you want a supernatural experience? We got something for you. Why the sleep paralysis? Why the prophetic dream? Why the orgasm? I have no idea, but it is easily the most frightening and unexplained thing that has ever happened to me. Here's Peach's Christ.
Peaches Christ, I'm so happy to have you on your magic and our whole team is. We're such huge fans and I've been such a huge fan since back when I lived in San Francisco and would go to your Midnight Mass live events that were so much fun. And I don't even know where to start with you except to ask you, where did you come from? <laughs> what's, the Peaches, <laughs> what's the Peaches Christ origin story? Well, the first thing I want to say is thank you for having me on and the, the, the fandom is mutual. To me, you're a, a very iconic member of the San Francisco community that I, I am so nostalgic for because I moved to San Francisco in the mid-90s. We were lucky to be there. That was a special time. I really agree. Like, I mean, I worry about sounding like one of those, like, older, bitter people who's, you know, waxing nostalgic. But then I'm like, no. <laughs> it, it, it really was a magical, special, amazing time, you know. But yeah, I came from Maryland, actually. I grew up in Maryland. You know, I, I, I really am the, the product of, of a discovery at a young age of John Waters and the Rocky Horror Picture show because, you know, I feel like those two things I discovered at a very formative age growing up in Maryland. And then then the fact that, you know, John and, and Divine and Mink and Edith Massey and all those weirdos were just up the street, you know, in a city where my relatives all lived. It really was a mind-blowing thing. And so, so my drag persona, my creative career, my writing and directing, it, it tends to center around a love of drag and horror and cult movies and midnight movies. And yeah, that's kind of where it all got started. I love that. And I really relate to it because I was a goth teenager who also was just like staying up late in my friend's basement watching like Desperate Living and sneaking out to go to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It must have been incredibly exciting to realize that they were sort of close to you. Like it must have made that world that John Waters created with, with the help of all his actors, it must have made it feel so accessible. And a, and that a creative life maybe was accessible. Absolutely. I think that that, because I grew up in Maryland and in the bubble of going to Catholic school and being a kid who was obsessed with horror and obsessed with theater and drama and being flamboyant and outrageous and had a real love for haunted houses and haunted attractions, I was an oddball. I was like the black sheep. And so I thought Hollywood, you know, I subscribed to Fangoria magazine and all of that stuff seemed like a million miles away. You know, like Hollywood seemed so far away to me and so far removed so that when they were shooting Hairspray and, you know, I was a kid in junior high and had heard about this movie being filmed in Baltimore uh, because that was really a crossover experience for John, right? Like that movie really made the mainstream uh, news, especially the local news. I clued into the fact that not only was the film about racial integration, but the fat girl's mom in the movie was played by a man. And I had to, you know, kind of pretend I wasn't interested, you know, because as a young queer kid, you know not to give all your tells just so you can survive. But of course I was like, what do you mean that's a man? I just, it blew my mind. So it was the fact that they were making the movie up the street, they were so close to where I was, and that the film featured this person called Divine, that was really what unlocked the door. And then of course, that was just, that was the gateway drug to, to discovering Pink Flamingos and other things at a very young age. That is so excellent. I love that you went to Catholic school. And then, you know, you went on to deem yourself Peaches Christ. So, like, what was the oomph behind taking the name, the moniker of, of the world's, one of the world's largest religious leaders that you were perhaps tormented? 
represented by their followers. <laughs> well, that's act- actually exactly it. So I was lucky that I did go to Catholic school. I was raised Catholic, but I didn't have nutbag parents. So when I said in eighth grade, like that I did not want to be confirmed, and I started asking those questions, my parents actually backed me up. And so even though the nuns at school and, and some of the priests kind of, you know, ostracized me or, you know, were kind of bullying a little bit when I look back on it because they could not believe that my parents were supporting this decision not to be confirmed. I felt like a rebel, but I had the support of my parents. And, you know, I started asking those questions then. And I think my anger with the church continued to develop with my sort of queer realization, you know, in high school. And so my rage towards the church and my interest in drag as a punk rock kind of uh, act, you know, again, my, my, my drag idols were Elvira, Divine, and Frankenfurter. So, you know, I, I, I liked drag to be a little dark and transgressive. It felt like taking the name Peaches was going to piss off all the right people, which it did. <laughs> yes. So, so good. Listen, do you have a spiritual practice? I do, actually. I don't talk about it that often because I think, like a lot of people, I understand the entanglement of spirituality with religious damage. And so I I like to make it very clear that I am a spiritual person, but I'm also very very anti-religious in a lot of ways. And it's an interesting thing because it's confusing even to me, you know, in my head because I've had to sort of detangle an old and outdated concept of God. But I'm sober and part of my sobriety has been to, you know, create a a higher power of my understanding that, that is very different than the one I was, you know, force fed as a young person. So I definitely am spiritual. Um, I meditate every morning. I, I definitely have a concept of God. It's very, maybe if it's aligned with any sort of practice, I guess you'd say it's probably pagan because it's it's so based in nature. And then as far as any sort of religious statement I make, I feel like I do that through Peaches Christ. And then I'm, of course, uh, a card-carrying member of the Satanic Temple. I like to to tell people that that's more for me uh, of a political movement that I'm a part of rather than a, a religious or, or a spiritual one. It's performative. Totally. It seems like that's their whole jam is just almost doing like these incredible performance art political pranks that sort of expose religious hypocrisy. For me, it was a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, when um, they were first coming around and they started to actually do real litigation as far as challenging um, anti-choice laws and really the separation of church and state in different different places. And that's when I was like, oh, yeah, this is the satanic church I want to be part of. And Anton LaVey, of course, is a huge inspiration just because of the drag of it all. You know, I mean, that talk about a performance, you know, I mean, he wear the cape and the horns and, you know, do... uh, ceremonies with you know Jane Mansfield and you know it's like that's such fabulous drag and it pissed all the right people off and it scared people and I love it does so you love horror obviously does horror play into your experience of like the divine or spirituality in any way is there any sort of like influence or relationship there you know I actually think it does and I, I didn't realize that until much later in life and you know, I was am still a huge horror fan, but especially as a kid, you know, I was just so into it. And later as an adult, and especially because I made a horror movie and got to think of it from the point of view of like, why? <laughs> you know, why? What, what am I trying to say? It, it, especially in relationship to showing, you know, violence and, and really dark and hideous things, I tapped into this sort of idea, actually reading an interview with Wes Craven 
who said, you know, horror filmmakers and horror fans tend to be deeply empathetic, sensitive people. And so their attraction to these films is that they need an outlet, they need a fantasy world where they can kind of exercise some of this psychology because the horrors of the real world are so deeply hurtful to them that this is a safe place for them to sort of play, you know, and, and kind of play out these fears and worst case scenarios and things. And, and because it's fantasy, it makes a big difference. And I really resonated with that because I remember around the time I read that interview, not being able to make it through the movie The Hurt Locker. Like I was so traumatized by it, you know, in the theaters. I think because it was, it was about something I knew was happening, I mm. couldn't handle it. Whereas send me to a Freddy Krueger movie and I'm just giddy, you know, because I know it's all makeup and fantasy and, and fake. And, and so I think when you get into this sort of the grand guignol of it and you, you are theatrical, it's like, let's play out these things that haunt us for real in this sort of safe space. I really want to talk about the haunted house that you have coming up in San Francisco this Halloween season. But you had talked about being younger and being involved in some haunted houses. Mm -hmm. Have you been doing this for a long time? Longer than I knew? Yes, but much longer. It's funny, the people who knew me as a kid, uh, especially if I go home to Maryland like I have been, and people are like, wow, like you really haven't changed. <laughs> you know, uh, Because... Uh, I was obsessed with haunted houses. I grew up going, spending summers at a place called Ocean City, Maryland, which is a very uh, quintessential East Coast boardwalk resort town. And at the end of the boardwalk, they had a Bill Tracy dark ride that you rode through called the Haunted House. And they also had a walkthrough haunted house that was this giant version of the Psycho House, and it was called Morbid Manor. And all the goth kids, all the heavy metal butt rock kids of the 80s, the teenagers, they all worked there. And as a kid, I was like 10 years old. This is the 80s, so your parents let you do whatever you want. And my parents would just let me ride my bike, you know, two miles down the boardwalk to the Morbid Manor, where I would then sit and watch people going in and out of that haunted house for hours at a time. I knew all the teenagers that worked there. Sometimes they would let me come in and scare, you know, if, if they didn't think I would get caught by their boss or whatever. My obsession started then. And then about the time I was in junior high, high school, I started creating these sort of experiences in the neighborhood I grew up in, in Annapolis. And that grew. It was really my first um, experience producing. I would write a script. I would uh, audition all the neighborhood kids. I would spend a year with my buddies building sets, building coffins, creating, you know, running electricity. My father helped me get permission from the landowner where we were doing this haunted trail so that it was all legal and on the up and up. And like my dad would take the chain off the chainsaw and he would be the finale monster and I'd put him in a costume. My mom would wear the costume I had created for her and she would sell the tickets and we were like written up in the newspaper. And, you know, that was really you know, my first taste. I mean, I was making movies and doing theater and writing plays, you know, as a kid for, for school and stuff. But I think the first thing that I actually ever monetized or got press around was The Haunted Trail, as it was called. So so that actually is maybe the, the, the where I really got my start. So tell me about the, the um, haunted house that is, uh, I think it's a few levels up from the haunted trail that you have going on. You've got it. It's, it's in San Francisco. It's at the Mint, the old Mint building. How in the world did you secure that building? 
talk about a haunted. It always seemed like a weird little haunted monument. Uh, very much so. It is. It is definitely. If ever there's going to be a haunted building in San Francisco, it's that one because you know after the 1906 earthquake, you know that building was the only building left standing in that whole neighborhood, and it's it's a horror show really because they they were able to shut all the uh, steel. Um, shutters to protect the gold inside. At that time, there was a third of the country's gold located in that building. So it was their duty to protect the building, which meant as people were burning alive in the streets, begging to be let in, um, the employees of the Mint, the federal employees, actually barricaded themselves in the building and kept it wet. They kept it wet with a central well, and that's actually what kept the fire away. Now, I know all this history because I work it into our shows. Luckily, my my couple decades of work as Peaches in San Francisco are what got the doors to the Mint open. And then once they were opened in 2018, I was able to go, okay, what do I want to do? And my it's really my love of haunted houses uh, mashed up with my 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 newer love of immersive theater experiences. So it is a full show with a, a beginning, a middle, and end. The actors have a story to tell, and it's a 60-minute immersive horror show. This year, I wrote a whole new story. The concept for the last couple of years was centered around the idea that after the earthquake, the, the Mint was secretly used as a prison uh, before Alcatraz opened, which we, which we did such an effective job that there was actually a few press that would come and actually write about the story as if it had happened. This year, uh, the concept is that in the, the 60s and 70s, when there's actually a lot of questions about what the Mint was used for. You know, there's a lot of mystery because it, it was dark for so long. The, the concept is that this family, the Blackwell family, who have the world's largest collection of occult artifacts, um, have been storing them in the vaults of the Mint. And so for the first time ever, you as the guests are invited to do a tour of these artifacts in a, in a, in a gallery. Um, at the Mint, and you go into the vaults. And of course, one of these artifacts contains a power that opens a portal to another dimension, and you, as the guests, have to follow this character as they unleash the immortal reckoning. So it's a, you know, it's a lot more fantasy and supernatural um, than Terror Vault was a few years ago, and I think part of that might be the pandemic, where I went more fantasy than than hardcore brutal horror. I like to say that we're maybe one of the um, most unapologetically feminist haunts because we typically feature women victimizing men in our show. <laughs> uh, we have very few scenes of of women being brutalized because I feel like we've seen that, we've done that, you know. Um, and and in general, my my power um, comes from a femme place, and so the the the, the women. I have no problem you know, portraying wicked women, which I guess you could argue is problematic, but I think it's way more fun and way more delicious. <laughs> so it's a lot of a lot of men being um, murdered in our show. But this show, because it's more fantasy, uh, there's less of that kind of classic horror violence that we've had in the past. And it's more, uh, I mean, I think it's really beautiful. And it's, I mean, I mean, I'll tell you, Michelle, speaking of our heyday, I wrote a whole sequence in this show just so that I could hear what I wanted to hear. So there's an entire section of the show that's dedicated to this 80s goth nightclub run by vampires in San Francisco called Fang Bang, which, you know, I made up. But it's just so that I can play, you know, the whole thing is Susie and The Cure and, you know, every night. And so we're doing a pop-up bar in the Mint that you can come to, open to the public, with vampire actors and we have goth DJs and, you know, and so so I'm, I'm selfishly kind of just building the show that I would want if I were a guest. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm, I'm getting chills. I'm so excited. 
listen, can I read tarot cards for you? Sure. I think because of the pandemic and, you know, everyone's life kind of being turned upside down, I guess my biggest question is, like, creatively I've shifted gears, both out of necessity but also out of wanting to. And I'm just wondering, like, is it going to work out? <laughs> you know, creatively, I've, I've really, like, in, invested a lot more time, like, kind of moving away from the constant cycle of, of producing shows and live theater and touring, because I can't, to, to uh, in addition to doing, you know, the Terror Vault shows and also hopefully theater in the future, but really kind of investing a lot more time in, in writing and developing projects, you know, for TV and uh, movies and, and stuff that I guess intimidates me. All right. So I'm going to shuffle and just see like, what's, what's the path look like right now for you? Let's just see what's this next sort of like, I don't know. What do you want to say? Six months. Okay. Great. Let's see what this, you know, what, where's the ease? What are the challenges? Let's see what the, sto what story we get from the tarot. Wait, what is your astrological sign? Capricorn. Your ca oh, your centerpiece card in this three-card reading is Sun in Capricorn. Power. Oh, wow. Which is great. That is so good for you. Um, I love this so much. This, I want to say, this is like a, you got really good cards, and you also got a like how can you find some peace in your mind card, okay? Your centerpiece card is this four of discs, and it's like – you know, as you're talking about like what you're moving away from and what you're moving into, to me that was like, well, that just sounds so organic and natural, like nat, like it's a natural evolution of who you are and your energies. And I feel like this really confirms that it's like, yes, this is stable. You know how to do this work. This is so Sun and Capricorn, so four of discs. The card that's before that is the star, making your dreams come true, reaching. Reaching out, really like going for it. What's your wildest dream? Like, I love what you were saying about how this is very, how this year's haunted house has a lot of fantasy in it. I feel like the star mm -hmm. very much supports that. It's like very imaginative, it's very inspired, and it's just knowing like, can I make my wildest concepts take root on the physical plane and like bring mm. them into fruition? And it's like, yes, with this power card after it. Yes, you can. But what are you going to do about your tormented brain, peaches? You got this <laughs> nine of swords here at the end, okay? So it just looks like, you know, the good thing, the good and the bad mm -hmm. thing about the swords, the swords card, especially this one, is that this is happening in your mind, right? So mm -hmm. this isn't external you know, failure or anything like that. This is sort of like in the in the Rider Waite deck, this is the card of the person waking up from a nightmare holding their head. And so it's really about anxiety. It's, it's Mars and Gemini. And I, I really like thinking about the astrological attributes to these cards and really trying to puzzle out like why. Why is Mars and Gemini seen as like an intellectual cruelty? And I just think that Gemini energy pulls in so much. It pulls in all of the vibes. It pulls in the joyful vibes and the cruel vibes. And with Mars, Mars is just like a little engine churning it all up. I love that you're sa you were saying you have a meditation practice. I think that as you push your own creative and career limits and like move further like out of your comfort zone and into new areas where maybe you have less control initially, I think it's really important to to know that like that might be really destabilizing mentally for you, right? Like it might just invite anxiety in. How could it not, right? It's going to be really good for you to rely on any sort of meditative discipline, self-care discipline, mindfulness disciplines, all those kind of things that really help calm the mind and regulate anxiety. Does that make sense? Oh my God, yes, because that is the constant struggle and only in the last 
few years have I realized that that might be a lifelong struggle and that I can I can definitely quiet my mind. I can definitely, the me- whole move to meditation was just being desperate. And what I realized is that if I'm going to continue down the path of producing events and being an artist who puts my heart out into the world and sometimes my life savings, whatever, <laughs> that, that there's a certain amount of trauma, you know, that, that is brought up with this stuff and that I need to sort of constantly do my best to manage it. That's so, everything that you're saying is totally reflected here. It's like you get in this Mm -hmm. life to access the star card where you have a wild imagination and you're able to like bring it down to earth, you know, actualize it. And it brings you personally a lot of power, a lot of stability. It's like, it brings you respect. It brings you all those things that Capricorn wants. Like Capricorn Mm -hmm. wants to always be ascending the mountain. And it's like, this is your, this is your path up the mountain. And it triggers anxiety at the same time. Even though you want it it and you can do it and you're great at it and it gives you so many gifts and it gives the world so many Mm -hmm. gifts. That's the thing with the star too. It's like that joy of being able to actualize your inspiration. That's a joy that spreads to others. You know, the star, Mm. we all get to see the star. You know, we all get to like be in the starlight with you. So it's like, it's very giving and very generous, even as it does support, you know, your own personal goals for your own life. But yeah, man, it's, it's rough. With the anxious mind, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I have to say, like, even though I know that I still, you know, struggle with stress and anxiety, I also know that now I understand it. Like, I'm not afraid of it. I can confront it. And and I have a, yeah, different relationship with it. That's awesome. Oh, my God. Peaches Christ, thank you so much for being on Your Magic. I hope you have a great Halloween holiday season. You too. Thank you for having me. Hello, my name is Edgar Fabian Frias, and I'm going to be doing the Ignite That Fire Within Courage spell today. I wanted to create a spell that can help invoke sacred will from within, that fire from within, in order to help one be able to approach something that maybe is fearful in a way that can be filled with courage, be filled with that fire, knowing that it can be really hard to let go of fears. The ingredients for this spell are a red or white candle, a writing utensil, two pieces of paper, one or more of the following crystals and or fruit, quartz, carnelian, moldavite, citrine, labradorite, orange calcite, or you could also get an orange, an orange or red bell pepper, a persimmon, a sweet potato, or any fruit that you have in your home. First, you can find a quiet place to do ceremony and open up a sacred space in any way that feels right for you. Personally, I like to cleanse a space with visualizations and offer some plant offerings, get grounded, maybe say a few prayers, invite in protection and guidance, and take a few deep breaths. And then you prepare a sacred altar in your space. And of course, this could be on your desk, in your kitchen. It could be outside. And um, whenever you're ready, you light your red or white candle. And this lets the spirits know that you're available and that you're open. And at this time, you can grab your crystal or fruit and hold it in your dominant hand. And then take a moment, practice some deep breathing, visualize yourself breathing in courage and exhaling out fear. 
and then allow the powerful fruit and or crystal to charge up your body with energy. Taking some time to focus the energy center in your stomach and then down, going down to your groin area and starting to envision a fire start to build there and start to travel up from the core of the earth, really connecting to that fiery center of the planet, letting the core of the earth send up energy to activate those energy centers in your body. And then taking a second and asking for clarity, asking for precision, and then spending a moment and writing down 10 things that you fear on the two sheets of paper. On one of the sheets of paper, write down five things that you fear that you hope will never happen. For example, you could think of losing your job, getting sick, having a relationship end. And then on the second sheet of paper, write down five things that you fear, but that you actually hope will happen. And some things that I thought about myself was getting cast in a big movie role, getting offered a really big promotion that's outside of your comfort zone, signing up to run a marathon, etc. When you're ready, say the following affirmations. And of course, please adapt them to whatever feels authentic and true for you. I invoke the fire within. I ignite. I grow. I increase. As my fire grows, so grows my courage. I banish all fears that hold me back from my sovereignty. And feel free to repeat this three times. And after you say that, take a moment and either burn or rip or throw away that page with five fears of things that you do not want to happen. Just get rid of them. And then grab your list of the five things that you fear, but that you want to have happen in your non-dominant hand and hold that crystal or that fruit in your dominant hand and read these five fears out loud. And then repeat this phrase three times. Fear is a guide. Fear is a portal. Fear will set you free. And then after you do this, feel free to fold the paper, place it on your altar space, either under the candle or under the crystal or the fruit, and then strike a power pose. Let yourself get filled with a rush of meeting your fears with courage. Dance a little bit if it makes sense, or maybe just let out some sounds. And then close the sacred space as it makes sense for you. I like to give thanks and offer up energetic offerings to the guides and to the ancestors for their support. And I also like to spend some time writing and or drawing about the experience that I just had. Thank you so much, Edgar Fabian Frias. As we move deeper into spooky season, a time when many believe the veil between this life and the next grows thin, when you know the dying of vegetation in the Northern Hemisphere prompts us to think about things like death and mortality, it's good to have a ritual to help us work with fear. It's a powerful, motivating, and universal human emotion. We hope you learn from what scares you. We hope that you face your fears bravely. 
And if you happen to be a freak like me, I hope you enjoy your fears this haunted house season and get chased by a zombie or two at your local Halloween attraction. Tricks and treats. Thanks for tuning into Your Magic. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at This Is Your Magic. You can also subscribe to us right here on Spotify. We just don't want you to miss an episode, okay? Sign up for our newsletter at thisisyourmagic.com and get more musings from our team of spiritual seekers. And you can email us at hello at thisisyourmagic.com. We would love to hear from you. This episode was produced and edited by Molly Elizalde, Tony Gannon, and Vera Blossom. We got production support from Raven Yamamoto, and our executive producers are Ben Cooley, myself, and Molly Elizalde. Our original theme music is by John Kimbrough. Tune in next week for a conversation with Tanache. Thanks for listening.